Hi there, welcome to the Neurodivergent Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Griffith, and I am so excited to have you here. On this podcast, we talk about all forms of neurodivergence, from ADHD to learning disorders to giftedness to autism and more. If any of that sounds familiar, welcome to Neurodivergent Magic. Hello, guys, gals, and non-binary pals, and welcome back to the Neurodivergent Magic Podcast. I am so excited to bring you this interview. Today, I talked to Micheline, someone who lives with dyscalculia, and uh, I think this is a really misunderstood condition, and I'm so glad that Micheline is here to shed some light on the matter and explain what it's really like to live with dyscalculia. So without any further ado, let's jump on into it. Hi, Micheline. How are you? Hey, Megan. Good. How are you doing? I am also doing good. I am super excited for this conversation because I personally do not know a ton about the topic we're going to discuss today, and I'm really excited to get sort of an insider's perspective. (laughs) Um, Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So why don't you start by telling our listeners just a little bit about you and who you are? Um, Well, my name is Micheline. I am a marriage and family therapist out here in San Diego. Um, I have a small private practice and I work at UCSD. That's like my day job. And I'm also currently pursuing a doctorate degree in couples and family therapy. That is amazing. What, what wonderful work you're doing. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. I love what I do. <laughs> Good. Oh, that's wonderful too, that you love doing it. Um, so today I thought you and I could chat a little bit about dyscalculia, um, and what that is, how it affects you and what you want people to know. So why don't we start simple? Um, when did you realize that you deal with dyscalculia? Um, yeah, looking back in hindsight, I would say that I, re- I wouldn't say I realized what I had, but I felt like I was different in the third grade. Okay. So there was a time when we were learning the times tables and like we started learning multiplication tables. And I remember being like the only one, at least I felt like the only one in class, like really struggling with the memorization of that and having to like count on my fingers or needing a pencil and paper when it really just should have been like a rote memory thing. Like, you know, everyone else seemed to be like, oh, you know, 11 times two is 22. And it probably took me, I remember this distinctly, this boy in class was like, well, the 11s are easy. It's like 22, 33, 44. And I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's like literally the only ones I could remember, but I still struggle with like nine times eight. Like right now, I think it's 50 something, like, you know what I mean? Like, so it's, I would say I realized that I was not like the other kids in third grade. Absolutely. That third grade year with those times tables is, I remember it being awful. I would go home and have to do my times tables and just cry, (laughs) just cry. Yeah. 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 And I I think I faked it and I don't know how I passed, but you know, you just do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So when have you been officially like diagnosed with dyscalculia or Um, did you learn the name at some point and feel like a light bulb go off or? Oh, absolutely. Um, I've never been officially, officially diagnosed. And back in 2013, 14, when I was applying to uh, my PsyD program, I was really nervous about the advanced statistics class that I was going to have to um, take. And I 
think I like Googled that Googled like everything I could possibly think of and accidentally came across this math disability. And I was like, wait, what? The best way I can remember thinking of it then was like, it's like dyslexia, but for math. Right. And it was kind of like the sky opened up, but I was like, I didn't know that there was an, that people actually do struggle with this. Like I, I had no idea. Um, so I made an appointment with a psychologist and for, with the idea of being, having special accommodation at school, mm-hmm. um, like, cause I was so freaked out about the math that I thought, well, maybe if I, you know, if I have a documented, um, uh, diagnosis of something, whether it's a learning disability or a math disability, whatever that is, I would get uh, some reasonable accommodation, like, which ultimately led to like extra time on tests and things like that and turning in assignments. Um, ultimately though, that particular psychologist did not know a lot about dyscalculia and diagnosed me with ADHD, which also fits. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of a, like a wide, like a huge eye opener, like, oh, wow, I, I basically check every box on the ADHD list and I have this math disability, but we went with the ADHD to get me the um, special accommodation at school. Gotcha. Um, okay. But like since then, it, it's it's really been kind of a lifelong struggle with with this. And, and, I, and I don't think that enough people know about it. I mean, here I am in this profession of mental health and I didn't know about it till 2014. Right. Right. It's, it's one of those things (laughs) that we just don't talk about very often. And I think it's one of the, that's one of the best things about the neurodiversity movement, I believe is that we're Mm -hmm. giving language to people who have felt so alone for so long. Oh, absolutely. Um, it, it was actually quite comforting to find out that I was neuroatypical when right. I learned about the ADHD diagnosis and the more I explored it and, and what it meant for me that um, like, wow, I'm not, <laughs> not a total weirdo, <laughs> even though I like being weird. It just, it felt very, like you said, it feels alone, like very lonely at times. Right. Absolutely. So we've been talking all about, you know, your personal experience with um, finding out that you have dyscalculia, but what is dyscalculia really like for you? Like, how does it present itself in daily life? Um, well, the most common consistent thing for me is at work, uh, the department I work in at UCSD, um, we, we basically host families in like a hotel style setting. It's kind of like around the McDonald house. But anyway, we, we do take payment for that. And I consistently mess up like the credit card payments, the refunds and, and calculating in my head. Like it's a, like, it's always the same amount of money, 195 and like 425, right? Inevitably I'll go 495 and 125. Like I miss up. The deposits and it's it's never changed in two years <laughs> it's always been the same but I'll give the wrong change back like uh it was supposed to be a 425 deposit and they gave me 500 and I gave them back a five dollar bill because I thought 495 in my head right right and so that completely has this domino effect of messing up the books so I'm very open about it now I think I used to be I still get embarrassed um because everyone else is like duh like it's 
how do you mess up? It's 425 and they gave you 500, it's $75. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not what my head thought. Like I gave back the right change for the amount I thought in my head. <laughs> right, of course. But, but like, it's really embarrassing because then I have to go chase around and, you know, fix my mistake. And, and then with the credit card system, because I somehow I have, I have a huge challenge wrapping my head around credits and, and refunds. Mm-hmm. Like, am I crediting the credit card or am I like, is it a, re- anyway, it's, it's hard to explain, um, but it, it, it typically gets me in trouble. And I'm, it's now known widely throughout my department that I just, I do, Micheline does not do payments. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So is that something you've been able to accommodate where you don't have to take the payments or there's someone to check your work or are you still sort of struggling to figure out what to do about this? <laughs> a, a little, a little bit of both. Um, like I make it very clear that if it's too complicated, then I'll ask for help. Um, and most everyone's really super understanding. And I make a joke out of it. Like I can laugh at myself and um, like no one gets really mad or anything, but when it, if it's any more complicated than me just running a credit card and taking a payment, then I just leave it to everyone else. Mm-hmm. Like I can post a payment on a credit card. I can take the cash, but in terms of like, what is at the end of the day where they reconcile the batch? That is like not something that I can accomplish easily. Um, I, and put it this way, I probably could do it, but it would probably take me three times as long <clears throat> as someone else. And this also bleeds into, like, I have some trouble with financial finances. Okay. Like, I don't, um, like, I'll overspend because I think I have this amount, but I flip it around in my head. So I have to be, like, super careful. Right. Yeah. With budgeting. Yeah. I could see how budgeting would be an issue if you're constantly flipping numbers in your head or if it's hard. I've done a little bit of research on dyscalculia and I've definitely read about uh, having issues with working memory. So it can be hard to go to the store and think I have $50, I have $50, I have $50, but then you see something and it's $65 and you're like, oh, but I want it. And all of a sudden that $50 is gone. (laughs) Oh, hundred percent. That is so me every time. Impulse buy. (laughs) And I think, I think also too, um, it's, it sort of came into more, more in the forefront of things as my daughter's gotten older, like she's 14 now. And, you know, math is taught a little bit differently than it was when I was growing up. Um, And that's not to say that I think it's wrong or, 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 and, you know, whatever they're doing today, I'm I'm certainly all for progression and, and, and doing things in a better way. Um, but sitting down with her, with her math homework, starting from probably the fourth grade, third, fourth grade was really hard for me. And then I realized, well, third grade is when I, it really started happening, you know, and for me. And so that's been a struggle for me because I sometimes feel like I'm really stupid because I can't help her with her math homework. I'm always like, you know, go to your dad or Google it, or you know what, use a calculator because that nobody just writes this stuff out anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They can't use that old line they used on us in school all the time. What you think you're going to have a calculator in your pocket all the time? Like, yeah, yeah, we do now. Actually. Yes, we do. I know. I know. I feel like going back to those math teachers and being like, I literally have never used algebra in my life. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> like never. In fact, I actively have avoided anything technical, like with math, <laughs> as far as a profession. <laughs> yeah, and I think that what you just pointed out is so important for people with dyscalculia to remember, because like you were saying before, like oh, it makes me feel kind of stupid when I can't help my daughter with her homework. But you also just yeah. pointed out, like it hasn't held you back in any way. You don't have to do math in your daily life, and that's no, I amazing. Yeah. And, and for my statistics class, I passed with, um, I think I got a B in, in both of them. Um, but li- like, Hey, they have software for that. Now, nobody handwrites out statistics. Like, you know, I, I typically, I, it takes me longer. Don't get me wrong, but I can enter numbers. Like okay. I can enter data. Um, it's the calculation of the data. Um, but I do have to go back and check my work because I tend to flip things around. Um, but I still can do it. Sure. So it sounds like it's, it's very much a time-based, time and effort-based disability where it's like, I can do all of these things. Like it is possible. It's just going to be so much harder for me. <laughs> oh, hundred percent. Yeah. That's, that's why the extra time really helped in terms of the reasonable accommodation. And I think I, it's, I like to do things really fast. So when it comes to the math thing, it makes me feel a little bit um, incapable. You know, like it's, it's hard to kind of tease that out, but yes, I can do it. Yes, it does take me two or three times as long. And I think in that, when you're doing it in front of other people, other people can be like, what are you, like, are you slow or something? Or <laughs> um, my daughter would make fun of me, but she doesn't anymore because it hurts my feelings. And I express that, but um, yeah, like not being able to do it, it's, it's, it is surmountable. Like it is, you can get through it, um, but it certainly takes a lot of years and a lot of like cheating, like your little like cheats and stuff. Right. Yeah, exactly. It requires those accommodations. It's not something you can just white knuckle your way through. Right. Right. Or when you do white knuckle your way through, I feel like there's a lot of psychological impact when we try to do that with these types of things. Like, did you notice growing up, like trying to just brute force your way through it? Like I can do this, I can do this. And then sort of beating yourself up. Yes because I remember distinctly several times at the, you know, the dining table when I would do my homework at like after a third grade, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, um, I'd be there like until, you know, way long after dinner trying to figure out these algebra problems or whatever we were working on at the time. Um, and it, it, you know, almost in tears, really. Like I, I was so good at everything else. And then to have this one thing, which to me, like, math is like this great mystery to me. And I feel like it's its own language. And for I don't speak the language. So it feels very isolating. Right. That is such a beautiful way to put it. It's like a language and you don't speak it. And I don't yeah. understand it. It's like, it's like, it might as well be Greek. And everyone else is like, oh, blah, blah, blah. You know, and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> that is so interesting. And I feel like that would be really hard growing up watching everybody just inherently understand this and not knowing why you didn't. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and feeling a little bit envious, really, you know, like I was somewhat competitive academically and, and certainly in in the languages and the soft sciences and um, even like biology and stuff. Like I, I excelled in that, 
that the math though, like, you know, all my little friends would get A's and hundreds on their tests and I'm like, yeah, I got to see. <laughs> right. So, yeah. How, how did you cope with that? If you don't mind me asking, um, like, how do you cope with having your identity as being a very competitive student with like relatively good grades and then coming back with grades that aren't really up to your standard in one particular area? Like, did you feel shame um, or did you just sort of realize, Hey, this just isn't an area of expertise for me and that's okay. You know? Um, a lot of times I would just work even harder and get tutoring to get that A. And I don't know that, um, even though I would get an A if I did do really well, I never really understood it. It was more like, oh, I got the A because, but like, I, I couldn't tell you like how to actually do it. It was like, I studied just for that and couldn't like apply it outside of that. It's like, okay, I studied to pass this geometry test, but I still don't know what's going on in algebra or, or trig or anything like that. Like I'd have to like hyper-focus on that, but it didn't, it didn't like bleed into anything else. Right. So comprehension, I feel like is this idea of like, you'd have information and you're able to apply that information elsewhere yeah. versus knowledge is simply knowing a thing. So you had the knowledge, but you didn't have the comprehension. Absolutely not. hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, and I think mostly like in terms of coping, um, because I, you know, got good grades, it wasn't like anyone outcasted me for that. Um, I, I don't know that I shared my struggles with anyone growing up. Like I wasn't like, oh, like this is really hard for me. And how do you, like, I, I think I just kind of kept it to myself um, and made up for things in other ways. But nowadays it's like just dealt with humor. Like I can just laugh about it. And it, it actually does bring a pretty good laugh. And I, I, don't, I don't feel as bad about it as I do now like as I used to. Um, but yeah, it makes for some good humor at work. <laughs> I'll just like make fun of myself of like two plus two, Micheline doesn't know. And then we'll just all start laughing. <laughs> and, you know, but the, the really cool thing about where I work is like, everyone has their strengths and whatever. And it's like, well, we have this great team where it's, they can pick up some of the slack that I can't. And I know that they, there are certain things that other people can't do. Uh, so I've been really blessed in that, in that sense. Yeah. I think that's so, so special to have like a group of people where, you know, you can laugh at the things that are hard and you have people to help you cope when it, it really is when, you know, shit hits the fan. <laughs> oh, hundred percent. And people that are willing to like help and realize that, you know, this is something I struggle with, but they're really good at it. You know, like my one coworker, if there's anything to do with billing or any type of, I just leave it on her desk and a little sticky note on it. Right. <laughs> like this is for Marianne on Monday. And then, and then she like laughs or whatever, but you know, it kind of, we help each other out. So it works out. Yeah. I think that support system is really so necessary. And I think so many neurodivergent folks would get the help that they needed if we just structured our society in more of a communal way, you know? Right. Cause everyone has strengths and weaknesses. I don't think that we're all capable of being excelling at every single thing. Um, and especially when you're neurodivergent, um, you know, I think that there's, I kind of call it like, like my superpower because <laughs> I don't think like everyone else, I, I, I kind of see it as like, well, everyone else has this one way of thinking, but here I come along and it's like completely twisted, but it, it may not 
be the thing that we do, but it certainly gets people thinking in other directions. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, so like, like the way you think. yeah, math, maybe not your strong suit, but it, the way that your brain thinks about things, not knowing that math language means that your brain had to think about things in a different language. And that 100%. means you've got a whole new set of skills that other people don't have. Right. Like when it, like when it comes to measurement, like I can't do it in my head. So I'll figure out a creative way to do it. I'll be like, okay, well, this is my phone. It's six inches. I'm like one, two, three, four, five, you know, like, right. <laughs> like you, you, I just don't do it the way other people would do it. Mm-hmm. Have you found that to be like a strength throughout your life, being able to think differently? Um, yeah, I think for the most part, I think for the most part, um, especially when you have people around you that are open to it. Right. Right. And there's people that are just like, well, this is the only way to do that. You know, those black and white binary people that, um, aren't going to think any differently anyway. Right. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, (laughs) I definitely had a variety of math teachers in my day. Some math teachers were intrigued. They were like, that's very interesting. Tell me more. And I had one math teacher who actually yelled at me in the middle of class and goes, that's so (laughs) unorthodox. (laughs) Like in a funny way or like serious, like, no, I think she was genuinely frustrated by me. Isn't that funny too? Cause I remember like my best teachers and my worst teachers and one of my worst teachers was high school. And this, this is Haywood if you're listening. Um, she, <laughs> <laughs> she was so like orthodox math. And I was kind of like this neurotypical person that like a little bit goofy and a little bit like, well, why can't you do it this way? And we just butted heads and she was like not accommodating at all. And, and not to say that I even knew what was going on in high school. Um, but she didn't make it easier for me, nor did she hide the fact that I was incompetent. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that was probably the worst math teacher I've had. Um, and that's run the gamut. Usually like my statistics teacher was wonderful. Like when I explained to her, um, the one in my graduate program, she really just helped me along and, and understood at the time it was ADHD, but I also explained to her that I struggle with numbers and she's like, you know, lucky we have the software program. If you need any help, I'm here for you. Like, you know, like this isn't something you have to go through alone. Like she was amazing. And I think that made all the difference as well. And I think to your point, yeah, if the teacher that yells at you, you're not, you're going to be even more discouraged from it. Like you're going to feel even worse about yourself. Right. But if you have that teacher, that's like, you know what, let's get through it. Let's get, let's figure out something that we can get, how we can get you through this. And that actually, for me personally, made me feel like I was competent and I could do this. Right. Right. Absolutely. I totally resonate with that. I had teachers who, uh, they complimented me on the number of questions that I asked, (laughs) <laughs> no, because in math, it's just right. constantly like, how do you do this? Why do you do this? What's going on? Like, I don't know. And not to say that I have dyscalculia, but everything you're describing sounds very familiar to me. <laughs> right? Right, right. I think more people, I, I don't know how much reason out there about it because I haven't explored it that much, but I wonder, I'm, a, I'm going to assume <clears throat> that it's underdiagnosed. I, based on the you know, the research that I was doing, uh, experts estimate that it's probably just as common as dyslexia. It's just, it's currently underdiagnosed. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Especially since I didn't hear of it until 2014. 
So yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's part of why we're doing the podcast. That's part of why you're here. I know. I love it. Let people know like this is a thing. It's very real. And uh, we need to talk about it more because I think this is a good question. Um, How did things change for you when you realized there was a name for this? Um, It was a relief. It was a relief that, that, well, this, this is a thing, this is an actual set of symptoms that leads to something that I'm struggling with. And I, I don't want to say that I felt less alone, but it felt a little validating in some way. Like it felt very validating. Like, okay, there, like, I, I'm not just this anomaly and like, there's a name for what I'm struggling with. And, and, you know, it's not my fault. Like I'm not dumb. Like, <laughs> like there is something like neurodivergent about my brain that's literally on. Right, right. My uh, thing went off. Anyway, so yeah, so I think that um, for me, it was empowering to hear that. And it explained a lot for sure. Um, and like I said, the, uh, just the fact that it existed was kind of nice to hear. Do you think knowing about this at a younger age, like when you first started struggling with your times tables, if you had figured out, oh, it's called dyscalculia and like, this is what's going on. Do you think that would have helped? Or do you think it's the combination of knowing and the accommodations that have helped? I would say it's a combination. Right. And like of knowing about it and feeling okay enough to ask for help based on that. Right, right. Um, I, I do wonder too, like, what if I had known about that in the third grade? Like, wow. <laughs> yeah, you feel like that would have made a difference for you? I kind of do. I, I, I do think that like, I had some really great teachers back then. So I do think that it would have allowed for maybe some diversity and in instruction, like in the way that information is um, taught and certainly like maybe it's special accommodation back then, even like extra help in a tutor situation or, um, you know, having a special, a, a special class for that or something. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about. Right. Absolutely. Cause I know, even though they, I don't know that they would have called them accommodations back in the day, but like there definitely used to be, I remember having math accommodations growing up. Like I didn't have extra time on tests or anything, but right. when we did math, when we taught math, I would go out in the hallway and I would work with a one-on-one tutor instead of learning with the rest of the class. So like, I think back then right. they didn't use the words that we use now, but I think accommodations have been around for a while. Like we know when people yeah. need a little help. And I think I like to think that people genuinely want to provide that help when they can. Yeah. I like to think that too. And I think when I was growing up, um, it was more anyone with, with, an academic struggle would get pushed into like a special ed class. And I think the optics around that back then were pretty stigmatizing, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I I do, I can remember thinking like, oh, you know, you don't want to go to that class because that's where, you know, the the not so smart kids go. And then other 
not that I ever did this, but there were a, people that would like make fun of that set of kids. Um, sure. So doing like, so maybe that was some of the drive for me avoiding that was, you know, trying extra hard and um, not wanting to be flagged as special education. Right. Absolutely. And that I think is something we really, and we don't have to dig into it now, but (laughs) um, just in general, the neurodiversity movement really has to reckon with is this idea that we're all in this together, like all of us, whether we have minimal support needs or a lot of support needs, like we're all neurodivergent, we're all in this together and we can't separate us out into, you know, the what's the word I'm looking for? Like marketable, palatable version of neurodivergent versus like the stigmatized version. We, we just want all of us to be together. Right. And be sort of like, uh, not necessarily honored, but recognized and seen, right? Like that's really the validation, the recognition and being seen for that and not being again, stigmatized because just because we learn differently doesn't make us like somehow less intelligent right right and this whole idea of intelligence is just ridiculous anyway but yeah (laughs) right right and being less intelligent does not make us any less worthy you know like right okay let's let's say it did make us less intelligent that wouldn't make me less of a person exactly yes yes um so back when I was growing up you were looked at as less intelligent if you had to go to a special ed class right like that, that was just, and, and, and subsequently not as worthy of a person. Right. 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 Cause you are an out, you are an outlier. You're considered like outside that bell curve of what was considered normal back then. And I say that in air quotes. Um, <laughs> so yeah. 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 So you felt that pressure to like, I don't want to be in that class. I, I know I got to work hard. Like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I, I saw what, because one of my best friends back then, she was in, they had like A, B, C, and D group, and um, she was always in D group, and I was in A group, and it was really difficult for her, and I saw how differently she got treated for that, mm-hmm. like to be in like, the D group was considered the, you know, the slower learners, um, and I often wonder, like, were they slower to like you know like the you know maybe slower to learn or was it just a different processing that they needed you know what I mean like I never thought it was really fair to throw people in this group um and just teach but still teach them the same things in the same way like if you're acknowledging that they're somehow struggling but you're still giving them the same information in the same way how are you helping right all you're doing at that point is stigmatizing them hundred percent. And yeah. And so being it like, I remember growing like at that point in my life, like, I don't want to be in D group. So I'm going to, you know, stay up until midnight and get this problem done or whatever. Right. Right. I bet that was a lot of pressure. Oh yeah. I think so. I think it, it certainly, it wasn't easy at all. Um, and then I had deaf parents, so they weren't really understanding of how school worked in the mainstream. So that was an interesting combination. And I was just expected to get all A's. Wow. Yeah. That's so yeah. pressure from the parents, pressure from, you know, school, social pressure, social, social pressure. Pressures. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And it, 
I think it's helped me in understanding my daughter's education. Um, she seems to be pretty neurotypical for the most part. There's some ADHD flavors there, um, but it certainly made me more aware and a little bit more of an advocate in terms of, you know, if I, I think an assignment is a challenge for her. I'll, you know, I'll challenge the teacher to be like, hey, can you teach this in a different way kind of thing? So. Good for you. I think more parents, <laughs> not that I think teachers are doing absolutely everything they can, especially under the current circumstances, oh, but I think it can be really helpful to be like, Hey, my kid learns a little bit different. Could you do X, Y, Z? Like I, I think advocating for your kid is really powerful. It really shows them that you support them. Yeah. Yeah. I've, she's, she's been happy so far. So that's good. <laughs> good. <laughs> Um, well, before we go, I think, is there anything that you really want people to know about dyscalculia, something we haven't covered or something we have covered, but you think is really important? Uh, just like, what do you, if someone's going to come away from this episode with one thing ringing in their ears, like, what would you want it to be? Um, that if you or your kids or your, anyone, you know, seems to have added struggles than the typical, like, oh, um, they get a B or C in math kind of thing. If there's a, if there seems to be things that you're not grasping the way other people around you are, I would strongly encourage exploring it. Um, I, I think that it can be super helpful in terms of education and growth to know that you might struggle, that you, if you struggle with dyscalculia, um, that you explore it and how it affects you and get a team on board, you know, whether that's at work or at school or your loved ones, um, you know, to get other people to understand that it just might take you a little bit longer. Um, but I think it's really important to explore what it means for you and get that diagnosis if you need it. Right. Okay. Well, thank you, Micheline, so, so, so much for coming on here and sharing your story and your thoughts. I think everything you said has been so insightful and so helpful. So thank uh, thanks, you. Megan. It's really, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and I appreciate your time today. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you give us a follow over on Spotify, leave a review over on Apple podcasts and tune in next Saturday for another amazing episode.